tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. Has any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church? That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Hello, just test driving a Christmas cookie here. Hmm. Well, quality control. Somebody's got to do it. It was a fun ride. Let's pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit; they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, let's open the big book on the coffee table. Well, this is kind of a, an interesting... I just thought of something. I'm already off the tra- off track, and I haven't even gotten through one complete sentence, noun, and verb. <laughs> you know, the, the, this idea that that uh, there was a, a, an article written by by Cardinal Supich um, about about race, and I thought it was a, a one, wonderful insight. Um, that that uh, he points out, there's no such thing as a pure race, and there isn't. I, you know, I did the DNA thing, and I'm I'm so German. Except one out of three hundred of my ancestors apparently was an East Siberian nomad from Yakutsk. How he must have been pretty lost, or she, to get to Germany. But how that happened, you know, that that that's one of the profound insights of Christianity. Uh, you know, the, the, the racism of the... I don't know why I'm off on this topic. I just am. Well, it has to do with the reading. Um, that uh, the, the, uh, um, uh, the, the pseudo-Darwinists, you know, I, I don't agree with Darwin. I really don't. Um, and I think, I think uh, Darwin is one of the greatest scientific minds in history. And like all scientific minds, he was wrong. <laughs> he advanced scientific knowledge and awareness but along comes a new understanding that kind of well undoes his darwin's premise was that all life is descended from a simple single-celled organism the problem with that is there is no such thing as a simple single-celled organism that that um Every single cell is unbelievably complex. I, I think I've shared with you, I've known astrophysicists who are not believers. The smallness of Earth and the smallness of human beings 
contrasted with the unimaginable hugeness of time and space kind of make them feel unimportant. But I've met a number of uh, molecular biologists. They're believers. You know, the idea that if you find a watch laying on the ground, you would pick it up and say, oh, there must be a watchmaker who made this. It's so intricate. You would never say, oh, look at that watch. It just must have, those parts must have just coincidentally come together and formed a watch. That's basically the idea of, of belief in a, a molecular, bio, biomolecular, cellular understanding because a living cell is so much more complicated than a watch. So that said, Darwin was mistaken about that idea in that sense <clears throat> that I think we Christians have no problem seeing a guiding hand in, in the, 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 in the reality of life. The principle of the universe is entropy. Things are gradually slowing down, winding down. And as my, my science teacher in high school said, things are gradually ceasing to exist because motion that is energy and matter are interchangeable. And as the universe slows down, well, that's entropy. This is a theory, and but it seems to be a reasonable theory. Life does the opposite. Entropy simplifies things. Life, well, we can all say this, complicates things. I don't mean it that way. But, but life swims against the current of entropy. So, we Christians have good reason to believe there's a creator. Uh, and, and this is not, not necessarily, you don't need revelation to understand there's a creator. Now, the nature of that creator is unknowable except for revelation. But all that said, we Christians, we have reason to be, a, well, a little bit proud of the gift that God's given us in the scriptures, because the pseudo-Darwinists of the 19th century essentially were saying, well, we're all descended from monkeys, but some of us are descended from a better class of monkey than others. And Cardinal Supage's article says, don't be ridiculous. I thought that was a very fine insight on his part. I didn't say it that way, but that there is no such thing as a pure race. And I, I thought that was a wonderful thing to remember at Christmas time, that we are all called to the family of God. And we are all, every human being on this planet is descended from the same two people. I mean, science confirms that. They talk about um, uh, uh, <clears throat> genetic Eve and genetic Adam. They can't say they were, lived at the same time. Some scientists say they didn't, but we are clearly descended from one woman and one man. It has taken science a long time to catch up with the Bible in that regard. And uh, I mention that because this is what the first reading is saying. <clears throat> My salvation's about to come. <clears throat> Blessed is the man who, who uh, uh, does this, the Son of Man who holds to it. Now, Son of Man here refers to a human being who keeps the Sabbath free from profanation. In, in this context, it's a human being. In the context of what Jesus said, calling himself the Son of Man, he's, he's clearly referring to the book of Daniel, the Son of Man being a celestial being. But again, I digress in a digression. 
He who keeps the Sabbath from profanation and his hand from evil doing, let not the foreigner say when he would join himself to the Lord, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. This is a prophecy uttered long before Christ. Um, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, serving him, loving the name of the Lord, them I will bring to my holy mountain and make joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifice will be acceptable. You understand that the temple, the place where God had chosen to dwell, was strictly off limits to anyone but Jews. Strictly off limits. Uh, the the temple of Solomon, uh, <clears throat> which was built on the crest of Mount Moriah, a rise just north of the old, old city of David, um, Jerusalem, uh, there was a square, perfectly square retaining wall, apparently. And no non-Israelite, or even an Israelite who was not in the covenant, who had not been circumcised, who had not was not following the covenant, they could not go into that, that square on which the temple was built on top of Mount Moriah. Now, the temple was expanded at the time of Christ. Uh, and there were, it was a huge plaza. It was, it was, uh, the size of, I think, 10 football fields. It was vast, but the original square of Solomon appears to have been remembered by a low wall and no non-Jew could go past that low wall. Uh, no non-Israelite better put. <clears throat> if they did, they would be torn limb from limb. There was, there were warning signs at the gateway through this low wall. It was about the the size of a, a rather high communion rail. Uh, and the sign said in Greek, Aramaic, and I think Latin, if you pass, if you're not a Jew and you pass over this, we won't be responsible for your well-being. It's one of the signs is actually recovered. And I, I don't, I think it's either in the Turkish Museum in Constantin or in Istanbul or in London, one of those places. But it's it's very real. So, what the prophet is saying is that's not what's going to happen. That one of these messianic prophecies is that the whole world will come to worship the Lord. And, you know, this is true. This happened. That, that I, I always tell you, go to the airport in Tel Aviv and you will see the whole world passing by. You know, when you visit Jerusalem, not if, but when you visit Jerusalem, make sure you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre at the very beginning of the day, like 5 a.m., I think it opens at either 5 or 6, I forget. Uh, go then, because if you wait till 9 or 10 in the morning, the crowds are are huge. You, you won't be able to get into the, the actual tomb of Christ uh, without standing in a long line and waiting for, for ages, uh, because the whole world is there. Uh, um, the Russians come by, by, by plane loads. The Koreans... The the um, it's just everywhere that that you can't get away from the truth of this prophecy fulfilled in our times that the whole world is 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 going to worship on God's holy mountain. Now, this idea that that oh, excuse me for a moment. This idea that no no it's got to be exclusive it's just ours. This was an idea very popular among certain people. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, when I got to know Rabbi Lefkowitz so well, I didn't realize that, but there are gradations of of inspiration 
in the old in what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. The only infallible part, as far as they're concerned, as far as the Orthodox Jews are concerned, are uh, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. Isaiah is wonderful, but it's Isaiah. They look at the rest of Scripture, in a sense, as commentary on the Torah, on the first five books. We look at the Scriptures as inspired from the in the beginning of Genesis to the Amen of Revelation. It's all equally inspired. We may treat the Gospels with greater reverence, but we don't think of them as more inspired than the rest of Scripture. Orthodox Judaism does not hold that. The Torah is uniquely infallible. God dictated it to Moses word for word. This was, I don't think this was true at the time of Christ, that, that Pharisees were much more interested in the, the prophets and the Psalms and all these different things. Jesus, we saw the other day, calls the Psalms your law. He, uh, he aligns them with Torah. Well, what happened? The Psalms and the prophets, you could read them in such a way as to think maybe these Christians have a point that these messianic expectations in the Psalms are, are uh, and in the, the prophets, they really do kind of apply to Jesus of Nazareth. And I have this feeling that the Pharisees kind of backed off uh, <clears throat> their devotion to the, the other parts of Scripture that are not Torah. It's just a theory. I'm not sure I'm right. Well, uh, this is something that, that is not in Torah, but it's it's part of the messianic uh, heritage, part of the the messianic expectation that the whole world would be would be made holy to God. Now let's go to the gospel, John the fifth chapter. Uh, Jesus said to the Jews, and you know it's very interesting that the gospel of John can be construed as anti-Semitic. It is not anti-Semitic. It was written by someone who we would call a Jew. Um, the the um, <clears throat> the war scroll, the Dead Sea Scrolls, I think it's also called the Damascus Scroll, it has the same vocabulary that that uh, John has. Um, I, I think that's very interesting that, that, that it uses this word Jew as if it was this as if it was not being written by a Jew, and it most certainly was. I have a feeling that the term Eudaios which is translated Jew in English, which I don't know that it should be translated that way. I think it should be translated Judean, but that's just me. Well, these Judeans were a distinct group within the community of Israel, I suspect. Maybe the the largest group and hands down the largest group. But they were the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes, and they, they really um, lived by the status quo involving the temple. And there were other groups. There were the zealots who wanted to overthrow the Roman occupation violently. The, the Judeans were, well, in large measure, collaborationists, uh, but then they revolted. There were the Essenes who came from the priestly families. Uh, they would not have called themselves Judeans. They weren't Judeans. They were Levites. They weren't from the tribe of Judah. And I see this um, in in John. John, I suspect, was a relative of Jesus on the Blessed Mother's side. 
She was from a priestly family and the Davidic family, apparently, because she was a kinswoman of Elizabeth, who was from a priestly family. So, John the Evangelist, who had been a disciple of John the Baptist, who wrote this gospel. I, I believe he wrote it, despite what some revisionist scholars say. I believe that, in essence, this was these are the words of John the Evangelist. And the apparent anti-Semitism of this book is written by someone who we would call a Jew, but he would not have called himself a Judean. He was a, a partisan in his youth of the these sects that lived by the Dead Sea and, and were waiting for the Messiah to come, who are saying that the the Judean establishment was corrupt, the monarchy in the temple. They were out in the desert waiting for the uh, uh, Messiah to come and set everything straight. So when, when you see Jesus said to the Jews, he's saying to these people coming from Jerusalem, you sent emissaries to John and he testified to the truth. I don't accept testimony from a human being. In other words, I don't need you to like me. Uh, that's a rather bold statement. I don't need your approval. We live in this world just craving the approval of others. He said, I don't accept testimony from a human being, but I say this so that you might be saved. So we don't need people to like us, but we need to like people in order that they may be saved. Our motivation for for being respectful of people shouldn't be that it will reflect well on me. But if I don't state the truth in a way that God can hear it, or if I don't state the truth in a way that people can hear it, they will never hear it. Uh, that, that the motivation is everything here. Jesus is motivated to say something to these people who are becoming increasingly his critics. The, the, uh, he doesn't do this so that he can make nice with them, but that they, so that he wants to say things in a way that can be heard. So often you hear people say, well, I'm going to tell you the truth. No, you're not. You're going to say something and I'm going to turn my back on you because you're so hostile. I didn't hear truth from you. I heard anger. You speak the truth in love. How often do I say that? Uh, I say it so often so that I can hear it. Then he goes on to say, I have a testimony greater than John's. The works the Father gave me to accomplish. These works that I perform testify on my behalf that the Father has sent me. I think that is fascinating. Look at look at the verb. The works that the Father gave me. Jesus wasn't doing stuff on his own. He was doing the works that the Father gave him. And I can argue with you and I can I can uh, engage in debate and just make life difficult. Um but I'm not going to convince you of anything. However, if I am attuned to God's Holy Spirit and the Lord really is leading me to share something with you, that will bear fruit. The works that the Father gave me. In other words, I'm not doing this out of my own uh, uh, spleen, my own uh, human anger when I when I talk to, you, to someone about the Lord. I, I'm doing it because the Lord has prompted me. Do you see the big difference in that? Um, did the Lord send you? Did the Lord tell you to do that? Did the Lord tell you to say that? Or are you just arguing with someone because they're wrong and you don't like them and you're right and who, you know, that sort of thing? No, no. You gotta, you gotta say things that the Lord has 
given you to say and do things that the Lord has given you to do. If this was how the Lord Jesus worked, he did. He only did what, what the Father asked him to do. I do nothing on my own. How often does he say that? If that was true for him, how much more true should it be for you and me that I don't do things just because I get mad in an argument? I don't do things because you're wrong and I'm right. I don't do things because, well, this is just, this is just, uh, I can't put up with this anymore. I got to tell you like it is. Or, no, I have to tell you this because the Lord has really put it deep in my heart and you know that I love you. That's totally different. All right, that's it. Let's take a break. We'll come back with some letters. And we'll open the phones at 888-914-9149, We'll be back. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men say that let men their songs employ just kidding don't worry i'm still thoroughly asleep <laughs> i'm finishing the cookie i'm not eating the cookie i'm finishing a cookie i still have a little bit of cookie left but i've run out of coffee oh well we all have to suffer in this life but moving along let's go to letters i have first to say thank you to scott uh from austin and uh, then I have to say thank you to, uh, um, let's see, uh, um, to Steve from Los Angeles. And I have to say thank you to, uh, let's see, where else I got to say thank you. And I want to, if I can get there, I want to say thank you to, um, to uh, Brittany. Uh, they all found the letter that I wrote years ago. I think in 19, is it 1997, um, letter from a priest to his parish about returning the tabernacle to its rightful place. It was written, uh, I, I guess, in um, 1997. I, I, it just, <clears throat> that letter, I, I just wrote it in my bulletin, but somebody took it and put it in a some sort of magazine or something, and it was reprinted. I'm not exaggerating about a million times. Um, it was, I, I don't know how that happened, but it, it, it was, it, it was just, I was just tired of, of people, the photographer setting up their cameras in front of the tabernacle. And I'm sitting up there in the, the, the great throne feeling like some potentate. And I just said to people, if they didn't mind, uh, I was going to move the tabernacle in two weeks. I wouldn't do it for two weeks. If anybody had an objection, talk to me. And uh, it was just a box on top of another box. It was a really poor church. And the, the altar of repose, as they call it, was a uh, just a plywood box. And the tabernacle was, it was a real tabernacle, but in a wooden box. Easy. We picked it up and moved it in the middle of the night, <laughs> the soup kitchen director and I. And there were people who wept. For joy when they saw it back in the middle and that letter got published in a lot of places and um you know as i've said uh, the tabernacle was was not in uh, the center spot for much of the church's history but the church has a habit of emphasizing doctrines uh things that we believe 
when when they're falling into disre- disrepute, we've always believed in the real presence. But then when cynical people started saying, well, is it really real? The tabernacle went in the middle increasingly. And I think that um, the Eucharistic revival about which the bishops are speaking should really have some very practical practical changes that reemphasize the dignity of the Blessed Sacrament. And uh, uh, I'll let the bishops <laughs> decide that because uh, God in his great mercy has not made me one of them. They have a great task and they need always need our prayer. But I wanted to thank all three of you for finding that. And it was in the magazine Census. They found it in magazine Census Fidelium. A uh, letter from priest to his parish about returning the tabernacle to its rightful place. So there you go. All right, let's go to other letters. I just got a letter from John uh, uh, about about uh, science catching up with the Bible. Most biblical scholars believe the book of Genesis may have been the first book to have been written down. That may have happened as early as 1450 B.C. So 3,500 years ago... Um, uh, this book was written. Well, there's an interesting quote from a Dr. Karen Erberg as to what's in German with umlaut, Erberg. Uh, as the universe continued to expand, it cooled further. And the point of this, if I can understand it, was uh, that, that in the first era of creation, things were too heated up to have atoms. Uh, all that there was was photons, light particles. And uh, as the universe cooled, there was a separation of light and darkness. Genesis 1-4, God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. Again, we're all relatives. The Bible told us that. God separated light from darkness. The Bible told us about 400, 400, when is it? 400,000, I don't know, when's after the a time. 400s of millions of years. Uh, uh, 400,000 years after the Big Bang, the universe had cooled down enough for atomic nuclei to keep electrons captured. So for four, after about 400,000 years of creation, uh, God separated the light from the dark. So thank you, John. That was a great, great uh, uh Edition. All right, let's go to this one. Uh, uh, let's see here. Uh, let me let me pull up. A, this is one. This is from Marianne. Can priests give absolution to someone who does not speak the same language as the priest does? In other words, can, can a penitent confess in their own language, and can you give them absolution in your own language? Yes, you can. Um, because it's it's the grace of the sacrament. It isn't the priest giving. I don't give anyone absolution. The Lord gives absolution through me. I mean, I give absolution, but but that's the sense of it. It's that the Lord is doing. It. If there's sincere repentance on the part of that person, remember we used to do it in Latin, ego te absolvo, in nomine patris et filii spiritus sancti. That was not the language that they could understand. God understands all these languages. Uh, it's not optimum. It's not optimal to confess in a language uh, not that the priest doesn't understand, but it still is the sacrament. Now, the second thing, can interpreters ever be used in the confessional? Uh, no, they cannot. What about deaf people? Uh, there are often confessionals that are equipped with uh, hearing aids. Um, people are absolutely deaf 
I, I imagine one could use sign language if the priest understood it and it was a face-to-face confession. Or in that circumstance, I imagine that the penitent could write down his or her sins. Um, but uh, deafness does not exclude the possibility of forgiveness of sin. Um, however, I, I, if I'm wrong about this and there's someone who is more aware than I, uh, but I don't think interpreters can be used in confession because that would automatically break the holy seal of confession. So, yes, one can receive absolution uh, from someone who doesn't understand the confession because the Lord understands it. Uh, but um, interpreters, I don't think so. All right, let's see. What have we got? Uh, oh, boy, this is complicated. Um what did Jesus mean when he said that we'd be able to handle serpents and not be harmed? That's at the end of the Gospel of Mark, the signs that will accompany believers. They will speak in other tongues. Uh, let me let me pull that up, because there is actually a sect of people uh, um, who believe that they, they are supposed to pick up poisonous snakes. They're called snake handlers. And it is the strangest version of Christianity um, that that exists. And people regularly die uh, in these snake handler churches. Um, that's a problem. Well, let me read the text. They will pick up snakes with their hands. When they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will place their hands on the sick and they get well. Um, well, and in my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in, in new tongues. The church has always interpreted this. Uh, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not harm them. That that uh, the Lord would protect uh, his missionaries from the dangers of the wilderness uh, and from the danger of enemies. In other words, uh, they 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 one can interpret this idea of speaking in tongues as the the charismatic uh, manifestation of glossolalia. That's the fancy way to say it, speaking in tongues. But I think that this idea of speaking in tongues really is talks about today's first reading in a way, that that they will go to the whole world and, and share the gospel in new languages. Um, I think that that may be the sense of it. Now, we see the manifestation of, of glossolalia elsewhere in the scriptures. So it isn't the only, uh, the only uh, um, uh, it, isn't, it isn't the only kind of uh, uh, reference, that, this gospel reference. Whereas this gospel reference is the only reference to picking up serpents and drinking poison. So... I would interpret this gospel reference to Glossolalia as speaking in new languages. Uh, they did. <laughs> the gospel is spoken in languages that didn't exist at the time of Christ. They're literally new languages. The phenomenon of ecstatic speech is witnessed to elsewhere in the scriptures. The verse is about picking up snakes. We hear stories about St. John. Uh, that a, a snake, they would try to poison him, and a snake would curl around the uh, the cup. We also see in the Acts of the Apostles that St. Paul uh, <clears throat> uh, is building a fire on the island of Malta, 
and a poisonous snake comes out and bites him, and, and they all say, oh, see, the gods, uh, he was rescued from a shipwreck, but the gods still want him dead. Nothing happened to him. They were astonished. So uh, those two verses are about the promise of God to watch out for his his missionaries. Uh, that's what the church has always thought, and that's what what uh, I, I think of them. Now, uh, most people think of speaking in tongues as... Um, uh, an evangelistic tool that they could speak languages they had never studied. And there are instances of that in the history of the church. However, that word also refers to ecstatic speech that we see in the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, when the disciples came out on the on the balcony of or wherever they were of the upper room and they're all speaking in different languages and there are people from all over the world that could understand them in their own language. Uh, well, everybody in that plaza had a number of common languages. They all spoke Greek and they all, most of them spoke some Hebrew. Um, men, the majority of them would have probably spoken some Aramaic and many of them would also have spoken Latin. So there were four languages that were common in that crowd. They were all what we would call Jews. It wasn't necessary to speak to them in their own language. This was a sign about the universality of the church. It was a fulfillment of today's first reading. It was the undoing of the Tower of Babel, in a sense. The 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 uh, the moment of speaking in tongues on Pentecost wasn't about evangelism. It was a sign that all the languages of the world had been brought into God's love. So, uh, these things have symbolic meanings, and the picking up of serpents is symbolic, and the drinking of poisons is symbolic uh, of God's protection of people who are on the mission. Uh, the snake handlers will occasionally drink strychnine and die, uh, and the reason they died, well, they didn't have enough faith. That's nonsense. Uh, that that uh, The snake handlers, uh, uh, I think, really uh, are taking it to a level that the Lord didn't intend. With that pleasant thought... Uh, we'll take a break, and we'll come back with our word of the day, and the phones will be open at 888-914-9149. We'll be right back. If you believe it, you really believe it, the Lord will smile upon you. Really believe it. The Lord will smile upon you. you okay. Know he loves you. Uh, well, he really uh, he's, loves you. I agree with him, but Ricky Nelson? Ah, uh, the 50s. I remember it well. All right, let us go to the word of the day. Give me a word. Any word, and I show you how the root of that word is Greek. Well, I don't know about any word, but hey, if it's in the Bible, <laughs> the uh, um, uh, this uh, when Jesus says, "I have testimony greater than John's," uh, these works that I perform testify in my behalf. That word is martyria, uh, 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 martyrion. Uh, the the it's same word as martyr, uh, to witness and to die for the. We think of it exclusively. A martyr is someone who dies for their beliefs. Um, it was the common word for witness. Um, 
this is I think we should remember this because we are closer to an era of martyrdom now than we were in former times. I remember the, the dear nuns in grade school saying, well, the era of the martyrs is over. Nonsense. The 20th century and so far the 21st century is the era of martyrs. I mean, you look at the Sudan. Millions of people were killed just because they wanted to go to mass. Mil- not not thousands, not hundreds, millions uh, that that the, um, the the Sudanese government uh, would put the air force up in the air. They they bombed all the churches. There were no churches, but people would would go to the forests to celebrate mass, and they would on Sundays they would put the uh, uh, the airplanes up uh, in, in 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 South Sudan. And whenever they saw a large group of people going somewhere, they would bomb them because they were Christians trying to get to mass. I mean, we we don't have that enthusiasm. Can you imagine wanting to die to go to Mass? Now, that's a witness. The word for witness and to testify, it's martyr. And when you say the Our Father, I'm often telling you, when you say, Sanctif- uh, hallowed be thy name, may your name be made holy. How did, what did a Jew mean when, when he said to sanctify the name? He was saying, if I need to die for being a Jew, I'll die. That's to sanctify the name. So when you say the Our Father, <laughs> surprise, you're volunteering for martyrdom. Let's move along here. Let's go to phones. The phone is ringing. Aaron from Hastings, Michigan. What can I do for you? Um, hi, Father. This is, um, I'm actually kind of a struggling Catholic, I guess you could mm-hmm. say. Aren't um, we all? But go on. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, like I'm actually falling away, but I'm trying to come back. But mm-hmm. um, the question I had: What proof do we have outside the Catholic faith that this is the church that Christ founded? Well, how to look at that? Uh, the Gospels, of course. And when I always tell people, whenever you see the number twelve. 12 is is symbolic in Hebrew. You know, in Hebrew, letters are numbers. So words can signify letters and numbers can signify words. And there's something called gematria that is word value. Whenever you see the, the, the number 12, it's about government. 12 tribes, 12 gates to the city, that sort of thing. And the idea of the 12 apostles is an indication uh, that that Jesus wanted to found an institution, not just not just a bunch of nice people telling nice stories, but the best evidence we have of it is the early church fathers. Um, that that for instance we have uh, immediately following Christ we have uh, we have uh, something called the Didache, the teaching of the twelve apostles. It isn't, and it's, we don't think of it as part of the Bible, but it's easy to find on the web the Didache, and it talks about how to how to say mass. This is this is these are people within the life of Christ, within that time frame, who talked about the institutions of an organized body. And the one that is the real clincher is Ignatius of Antioch. He was on his way. He was a bishop who lived about. Well, he lived. He was a disciple of Saint John the Evangelist, and he describes a church that you would recognize with priests, bishops, and deacons, and with the mass, with the Eucharist. He was on his way to be martyred in Rome, and he wrote a number of letters on on his trip, begging people. One of them, 
begs them not to bribe the officials to let him off. He wants to be martyred. But he talks about it. So there's an unbroken chain of, of, of writings that are outside the Bible that go back to the uh, uh, early, er, early church. And if you want something that wasn't written by Christians, there's uh, Pliny's letter to Trajan in which he talks about the celebration of Mass and the Christians uh, in about 110 A.D. So there's a lot of documentary evidence that the church existed within the lifetime of people who had personally known the Lord. Does that help? Yes, sir, it does. Thank you. Yeah, and he doesn't like Josephus talks about it uh, uh, in his in his uh, uh, history of the Jews. Uh, he was a Jew who was born just a little after the the death of Christ. A great book uh, on on basically the Christian faith, which really does allude to these founders. I often talk about it is the Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. You might want to read that. So. Yeah, it's it's. I have no doubt that Jesus founded this institution and and gave us especially the Eucharist. So I hope that helps a little. God bless you, Aaron. Good studying. It's Father. great fun. All right, I'll be. You be my prayers. God bless you. Let's go to Thank Joe. You. Well, you're welcome. Let's go to Joe from uh, Warrington, Pennsylvania. Joe, what can I do for you? Father, I'm trying to read the Bible from cover to cover, and I've come oh, across dear. the Genesis that has got me perplexed. Genesis okay. 6, 6, where God says he regrets having created humanity. How can an all-perfect, all-knowing being regret something? Well, that's the translation of it. It's, it's Genesis 6, 6. We're going to look it up in Hebrew because... Uh, you know, the, the 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 Bible was written for you and me. It was not written for God, and it speaks in very human language. Um, and so it, it's a little, it anthropomorphizes God sometimes in a way that, that we would not. Uh, the word uh, um, that is used uh, uh in this text, it's Naham, and it means to be sorry, to console oneself. And so God was sorry that he had, had created us and allowed, you know, that he, he we caused God grief. Uh, the, the, we see that in the New Testament. St. Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That's the amazing thing, that this perfect being, uh, allows himself to be made sorrowful by us. And there comes a point when he kind of redoes this. That's the point of the, the, the story of the flood, that it's the second creation. So I don't know if that helps you at all. Well, I, I don't know. It just seems like how can a perfect being do something that he regrets? Because of freedom. Because of freedom, he's not regretting it so much as he, he's grieved by it. The word nacham okay. can mean to be sorry, to be grieved. So it isn't that he's regretting it. The whole thing is about freedom. I mean, God, God gives us freedom, and we can use our freedom to hurt him. Well, why does God give us freedom if we're going to screw up? Because freedom is the only thing absolutely necessary for love. If I have to love you, I can't love you. You follow? God gave us freedom so that we could say yes to him. If we couldn't say no to him, we couldn't say yes to him. And he enters into this process in a real way, so much so that it grieves him when we sin. 
Uh, he didn't. So when, he didn't we say, when we say no to him, it hurts him. Yes. I, yeah. Yeah. And honestly. he didn't cause the flood to punish mankind so much as to renew mankind. It's a symbol for baptism. And, you know, well, I mean, he, all those people died. Everybody dies. What's the old song by the doors? No one gets out alive. Or the biography of Jim Morrison. <laughs> no one gets out alive. <laughs> I don't know if you're old enough to remember that, but I do. Oh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm older than not old enough. Yes. <laughs> uh, I remember nobody gets out alive. Yeah. And, yes. and it's true that everyone faces death and judgment. So the idea, well, all those people died. Yeah, they all not, not as far as God was concerned. They just were transferred. So the word naham can mean to be sorry. And that's the word that's used in the text. That God was grieved. And I can still grieve the Holy Spirit. So I hope that helps a little. It does. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Well, God bless. And I'm honored that you listen. Thanks so much. Let's go to Mark from Madison, Wisconsin. Mark, what can I do for you? Father, you have often mentioned that when Christ was working in the carpentry shop with his father Joseph, that he was known for making yokes for animals yes. that would not cause them any injury. Yes. And I find this such a beautiful uh, statement that I don't know if there's any scriptural reference to this, Apocrypha from the Church Fathers. Where does Church this come fathers. from? Because this fascinates me. Justin Martyr. Uh, it's a story told by Justin Martyr, who lived in what is today Nablus, the Greek city of Neapolis, uh, which is hmm, just a few miles north of Jerusalem. And he lived in at the end of the first century, beginning of the second, I believe. Uh, um, and um, let me see if I can find it. And he's the one who tells us that story. Uh, um, let me see if I can find it. Let's see. Okay. 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 Well, I'll I'd have to look it up. Ah, yes, yes. Uh, this is, um, uh, let me see, I'm looking at a, a blogger, Jesus uh, uh, Occupation. Uh, let me find a uh, yoke. Uh, let me see. Yoke. I'll press that button. Okay. Now, the uh, he also talks about... Um, this is, uh, um, he talks about yokes and parables in such a way that we have actually to research yokes to get the full concept of what he was saying. Coming from his own knowledge of them, he says, take my yoke upon you. Um, so uh, this is, oh, I don't know that it refers to the, I'd like to find the exact reference for you. But um, uh, Justin Martyr uh, really clearly says that uh, Jesus made yokes, and I again, I wish I could find that that reference. I'm, I'll work on it uh, and and see if I can find the reference. I should write these things down. But um, uh, just Justin Martyr is the church father who mentioned that. Does that help a little? It does. Thank you, Father. And if if at some point in time, because I I just find it such a beautiful reference oh, and gosh, has yes. so much inspiration that if 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 we could know where this came from and be able to do a little bit of research, that would be wonderful. Thank you so much, Father. Yeah, that, well, it, 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 I'm, it's definitely in, in St. Justin Martyr. So, all right, well, thanks for calling in. Let's go now to uh, uh, Greg from uh, Kiwani, Wisconsin. Greg, what can I do for you? Hey, uh, good, good, good afternoon, Father. Good afternoon. Yeah, so I mean, what? I, go on. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, um, you mentioned the other day that 
Jesus was not the only one immaculately conceived that Adam yeah. and Eve were. Yeah. Okay. No, it, God made Adam from the earth. Well, what does conceived mean? Can you mean? explain that to me? Sure. To be conceived uh, means it means to be. Well, you know, I've conceived of a great idea. Well, that's not conception. That happened in your head. The word conceive means to initiate. It's a. Uh, um, it's it's. You're thinking of it exclusively in in uh, sexual terms. It can mean to devise a plan in the mind as well as to to uh, become pregnant. So that's what the word means. And I, I said that, that, that Adam and Eve were conceived, albeit in the mind of God. But Adam and Eve came into existence without the effects of original sin. That's what the Immaculate Conception is, that our Blessed Mother was not burdened with the effects of original sin. Of course, her divine son was not either, nor were Adam and Eve. That's that's what I mean by it. So I hope that explains a little bit. Does that help? Actually conceived. No, it didn't really help. It didn't really help. Well, <laughs> no, I don't think. No, and, and Eve was made from Adam. Yeah, and they, but they they came into existence in this world without the effects of original sin. That's my point. That the first one to have this. Uh, uh, happen was not the Blessed Mother. And, well, Drew is coming up, and, well, he's pretty good. I don't know about sinless, but he's he's pretty good. Mm-hmm.